Section 38 of Uther and Egrine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Uther and Egrine by Warwick Deeping. Book 4, Chapter 5. The woman's face, haloed by the gloom of the casement, still looked out from Tintagel over the solitary grandeur of sea and cliff. Egrine saw ships pass seldom athwart the west, but they brought no hope for her, for she thought herself alone and served of none. How should Uther the king know that she was mute in Tintagel at Gorlois's pleasure? Had he not commended her to the calm orchards and cloisters of a nunnery? Even the ring he had given her had been stolen by sheer force. Days came and went. Dawn flooded the eastern woods with gold, and evening tossed her torches in the west. To Agrine, they were as alike as the gulls that wheeled and winged white over the blue waters. There are few men of such despicable fiber that they are wholly ruled by the egotism of the flesh. Your complete villain is in no frequent prodigy, being more the denizen of the regions of romance than of the common, trafficking, trivial world. There are bad men enough, but few Neros. Give a human being passions, pride, and intense egotism, and his potential energy for evil is unbounded. Virtue is often a mere matter of habit or circumstance. Joseph might have ended otherwise, if Potiphar's wife had had more wit. And as for Judas, he was unfortunate in being made banker to a god. Goliath of Cornwall was beholden to his own strenuous, north-winded nature for any trouble he might incur in his madness against Egrine. However much he braved it out to his own conscience, he knew well enough whether he was content or no. He was a strong man, and selfish, resentful, and very human. He was no oriental monster, no mere Herod. What magnanimity he possessed towards his wife had been frozen into a wolfish scorn by the things that had passed in Garlet's Valley in Wales. Moreover, he had a bad woman at his elbow. Like many a vexed and restless man, he had turned to ambition and the darker features of his character were being developed thereby. A king had wronged him. It was easy for a great noble to lay plots against a king. War, and the clamor of war, became like the prophetic sound of a storm from afar in his ears. Little comment had followed upon the disappearance of the lad Jehan on the day when Galois and his knights had ridden hunting. No one cared for the lad. No one missed him materially. Casual gossip arose thereon in the guardroom. The lad had risked the halter or the branding iron, and sundry threats were launched after him at random. Mark of the guard shrugged his shoulders and laughed. There's pluck in the lad, he said, for all your bullying. By my faith, I guess he grew tired of kicks and leavings and of being cursed by so many sons of the pot. Bastard or no bastard, the lad's no fool. The guardroom scoffed complacently at the notion. 
Jehan do anything in the world but snivel? Not he. These gentlemen judged of a man's worth by the animal propensities of the creature. They weighed a man as they would weigh an ox, for flesh and the breed in him. Mark, making a show of warming to his wine, enlightened his men further as to Jehan's disappearance. The lad and I went to bathe, he said. There was a ship in the offing, and sailors had come ashore to get water by St. Isidore's Spring. They wanted a lad for cabin service, so I took two gold pieces and told them to kidnap Jehan. A laugh hailed the confession, a laugh that changed to a cheer when Mark won accomplices by casting largesse for a scramble on the guardroom floor. I wish them luck of him, said the captain, pocketing silver. Devil of a spark could I ever knock out of the lad. Maybe you hit too hard. Maybe not. I'll lay my fist against a rope's end for education. Mark takes his wine like a gentleman, quoth one. May he get drunk on payday. And sell another Joseph into Egypt. The woman Malmain came in to join them, corpulent and thirsty. Superabundant and colossal, she impressed a strenuous and didactic mood upon the company, grumbling like a volcano, emitting a smoke of mighty, unfeminine gossip. Her black eyes wandered continually towards Mark of the Guard. She watched him with a certain air of possession amid all her sweat and jabber, laughing when he laughed, making herself a coarse echo to his will. Someone spoke of Galois's wife. So personal a subject moved Malmain to mystery on the instant. She tapped her forehead with her finger, shook her head with a significance that was sufficient for the occasion. Mad, said the captain of the guard. Malmain sucked her lips and yawned with her great chasm of a mouth. She was always that, she said with a hiccup. Paradise, eh? And golden harps. And damn, no beer. There was a certain flavor in the last remark that made the men roar. I wonder where they'll bury her, said the captain. Throw her into the sea. Galois's little wench won't weep her eyes out. Malmain smote a stupendous hip and tumbled to the notion. The settle shook and creaked under her as though in protest. We'll all get married, she said. Mark, my man, don't blush. Babylon was compassed round. The same evening, a soldier on the walls of Tintagel saw a dim throng of sails rise whitely out of the west. The streaks of canvas stood above the sea, touched by the light of the setting sun. There was something ominous in these gleaming sails, sweeping in a wide half-circle out of the unknown. A motley throng of castle folk gathered on the walls. Men spoke of the barbarians and of Ireland as they watched the ships rising solemn and silent from the west. Gorlais himself climbed up into a tower and gazed long at these sails whose haven was as yet unknown. He learnt little by the scrutiny. The ships had hardly risen above the purple twilight when night came 
and shrouded the whole in vague and impenetrable gloom. Galois ordered the castle into a state of siege, and with the night an atmosphere of suspense gathered about Tintagel. About midnight, some dozen points of fire burst out redly on the hills. Sudden and sinister, they shone like beacon fires, but by whom lit the castle folks could not tell. Men idled on the walls, shoulder to shoulder, talking in undertones, with now and again a bluff oath to invoke courage. The black infinite, above, around, seemed to hem the place as eternity hems the soul. War and death lurked in the dark, and on the rocks the sea kept up a perpetual moan. Gerlois walked the walls with several of his knights. He was restless and in no Christian temper, for the dark muzzled him. Not that he feared the unknown or the perils that might lurk on hill or sea. He had the soul of a soldier, loved danger for its own sake, and took a hazard as he would take wine. Yet there are certain thoughts that haunt a man for all his hardihood thoughts that may not weaken him, though they may chafe his temper. Such to Galois was the memory of a starved face looking out at him scornfully from the gloom, the face of Igrine, his wife. That night Galois's mind was prophetic in dual measure. Like a good captain, he scanned the human horizon for snares and enmities, old feuds and the vengeances of men the dark sky seemed to hold out two scrolls to him tersely illumined as to the near future. To Galois they read, The Barbarians, or The King. Forewarned thus in spirit, he kept to the walls till dawn. The sea sang for him stern epics of tumult and despair. Large projects were moving in his mind, like waters that bubble up darkly in a well. He was in a mood for great deeds, alarms and plottings, lust, gnashings, and the splendid agonies of war. When the gray veil rose from the world, many faces looked out east and west from Tintagel for sign of legions or of ships at sea. Strange truth, not a sail showed upon the ocean. Not a spear or shield glimmered on the eastern hills. The threatenings of the night seemed to have cleared like the leaden cloudscape of a stormy sky. Galois, scarred, brooding, sinister, appealed his knights as to the event. Not a ship, not a shield, he said, yet I'll swear we saw watchfires on the hills. Were we scared for nothing? Devil's beacons, quoth one. I have heard sailors tell of the phantom fleet of the Phoenicians. Have a care, said Sir Isambras of the wrinkled face. I remember me of the taking of Genorium. Given the chance of an umbascado, the good captain. Galois cut in upon his prosings. Scour the country, well and good, he said. Send out your riders. We will see whether there is a Saxon betwixt Tintagel and Glastonbury. 
Dolores had hardly delivered himself, and the company was passing from the battlements, when a trumpet cry thrilled in the solitary morning air. Galois and his knights halted at the head of the turret stair and looked out from the walls towards the east. A single figure on horseback was moving along the ridge leading to the headland. The rider was clad in black, and his horse trappings were of sable. He carried neither spear nor shield, but only a herald's long trumpet balanced upon his thigh. He rode very much at his leisure, as though the whole world could abide his business. Galois eyed him blackly under his hand. I was wrong, sirs, he said. Old Isambras's wrinkles deepened. He tapped the walls with the scabbard of his sword and waxed oracular after an old man's fashion. Galois turned his broad back on him. There is trouble in yonder gentleman's wallet, he said. They passed with clashing arms down the black well of the stairway to the court. Gates were rumbling on their hinges. The herald had ridden over the bridge, and the guards had given him passage. He was brought into the court where Galois stood in the center of a half-circle of knights. The herald wore a cap of crimson velvet and a mask over his face. He walked with a certain stately swagger. It was palpable that he was no common fellow. There was no parley on either part. Those who watched saw that this emissary carried a case of scarlet cloth and a naked poniard. He gave the case into Galois's hands, but threw the poniard on the stones at his feet. A fine insolence burned in his stride and gesturing. Galois's scar seemed to show up duskily upon his cheek, and he looked as though tempted to tear the mask from the stranger's face. An incomprehensible dignity waved him back, and while he dallied with his wrath, the man turned his back on him and marched unconcernedly for the gate. The court bristled with steel, but none hindered or molested him. They heard the gate roll too, and the rattle of hoofs on the bridge. The sound died rapidly away, leaving Tintagel silent as a ruin. Galars picked up the poniard, for none of his men stirred, and cut the woven band that held the lappets of the case. The white corner of a waxen tablet came to light. Gorlois drew the tablet out, held it at arm's length, and read the inscription thereon. His face grew hard and vigilant as he read, and he seemed to spell the thing over to himself several times before satisfied to the letter. He stood a while in thought, and then leaving his knights to their conjectures, walked away to that quarter of the castle where Morgane la Blanche had her lodging. He found the woman couched by the window that looked out towards the sea. Though dawn had but lately come, she was awake and sat combing her hair while a kitten slept on the blue coverlet covering her lap. Wine and fruit stood on a table near the bed with scented water, a rouge pot, and a bowl of flowers. Morgan was smothered in fine white linen, banded at neck and wrists with sky-blue silk. A kerchief of gold gossamer work covered her shoulders. Galois touched her lips and let her hair run through his fingers like water. Minion, 
You are awake early. Morgan's face shone white, and her eyes looked tired and faded. She had heard rumors and had watched the night through, being tender-conscienced as to her own skin. Adversity, even in its meaner forms, was a thing insufferably insolent, a cloud in the absolute gold of a sensuous existence. Being quick to mark any shadowing of the horizon, she was undeceived by Galois's mere smile. She caught his hand and stared up at him. Well? What troubles you? Is it to be a siege? Galois stretched his long neck, laughed, and eschewed subtlety. It interested him to see this worldling ruffled, Morgan, whose chief care was how the world might serve her. Read, he said, putting the tablet into her hands. Morgan sat up in bed with her fair hair streaming over her shoulders. She traced out the words hurriedly with a white fingertip. Her eyes seemed to grow large as she read. Her hands trembled a very little. At the end thereof, she dropped the tablet into her lap and looked at Galois with a certain petulant dread. How did the man hear of all this? God knows. Treachery! Galois jerked his belt and said nothing. The woman Morgan sat and hugged her knees. She looked out to see with a frown on her face, and the blue coverlet dragged in tight folds about her waist. The kitten woke up and began to play with Morgan's hair as it trailed down upon the bed. She cuffed the little beast aside and looked at Galois. Her eyes now were steely and clear, and very blue under her white forehead. Obviously he has learned all, she said. Galois nodded morosely. And this matter is to be between you alone? I have his word. And he is a fool for truth. Silence held them both a while, and Morgan seemed to dally with her thoughts. Her lips worked loosely as though moving with her mind. The kitten clawed its way up the coverlet and rubbed its glossy flank against the woman's arm. What of an ambush? She suggested mildly. Galois darted a look at her and shook his head. No, it shall be fair between us. Honor, with a sneer. I am a soldier. By the prophet, that is the strange part of it all. You go out to kill a man, and yet trouble about the method. There, honor enters. You kill him all the same. Morgan tossed the quilt aside, thrust a pair of glimmering feet out of the bed, and stood at Galois's elbow. She took the tablet of wax and held it over a lamp that was burning, till the wax softened and suffered the letters to be effaced. Galois's great sword hung from the carved bedpost. Morgan took it and buckled it to the man with her plump, worldly little hands. Let it not fail, she said. Galois kissed her lips. There will be no king, and the heir, well, you are a great soldier, and men fear your name. She kept him with her a while, 
and then bade him farewell. The sun was high in the heavens when Gorlois, in glittering harness, rode out alone from Tintagel and passed away into the wilds. End of Book 4, Chapter 5 Recorded by Lori Nadeau-Richardson www.laurierichardsonvo.com